But I guess it's welcome back for me. I hope you had a nice week without me. Um, exams, I just got back this morning because I have not been up on campus till today. So I just got them back this morning. I will try to look at them today and hopefully have grades up sometime this weekend and give them back to you Monday. So sorry that you're waiting so long. I hate, normally I like to have them graded the same day that you take them. But the way things worked out this time, I was not able to do that. So I will have those done. Hopefully I can look at them this afternoon and have at least grades up for you and then have the exams back for you on Monday. Uh, I did change the dates a little bit on some of the assignments. If you look up here, you'll see that things are different from what you had last week. Uh, mainly because I, I like giving the reminders and trying to give that to the substitute to keep putting up there is, is, is hard to keep giving, giving all that information. So what I did not change was the iTunes quiz. That is still due on Monday. So I'll give you one more reminder on Monday for that. Um, the first article review was due today. I know a few of you have submitted on D2L. That's great. You're done with it and don't have to worry about it. If you have not, you've still got till Monday to do that. It was supposed to be due today. I went ahead and extended that one day. Uh, the homework two was due on Monday. Homework two was due on Monday. I pushed that off till Wednesday because it includes telescopes and we're just going to, well, you had a little bit on telescopes on Wednesday. I'm going to go through the regular lecture starting today. So that'll give me some time to get through those. I gave you an extra day on that. Quiz two also has telescopes. So I pushed that off. That was supposed to be starting today, this weekend. I turned that off, put it through next week. So luckily nobody tried to take it between midnight and 5 or 6 in the morning when I got up and checked it and uh, changed the dates. So nobody tried to go ahead and take that really early. It includes, it includes chapter 2 and 3, so I went ahead and delayed that a week. That'll be next weekend instead of this weekend. So the only thing that you have coming up that's still due that is the same date is the iTunes quiz. That one I'm not changing. Uh, that one we already started on really had announced and ready before I, before I left. So that will be up and, and that is up and available this weekend. I know, I think three people have taken it so far. So you can take it this weekend. I will give you one more reminder on Monday, so you can take it by six o'clock Tuesday when it when it locks. Any questions on anything up here? Doesn't look like it. All right. Well, our picture of the day for today then. Very pretty, very nice and colorful. It's actually false color images. That's not what this would look like through the telescope. Um, in fact, for a couple of reasons. Not only is it false color, but it's not visible light. We're not looking at visible light here. We're looking at a combination of x-rays in the bluer color here. And the reds and the greens are infrared. So we're actually looking at what this is, is a supernova remnant. Supernovae we get to in probably about a month from now. We'll talk about a supernova is the end state of a very massive star. Well, there's two types of supernovae. That's one. A very massive star, not a little star like our sun, but stars that are 15, 20, 30 times the size of our sun in terms of how much matter they contain, become unstable at the end of their lives and rip themselves apart in a massive explosion. And this, what we're seeing here, is the remnant of much of that star that is now being spread across space. That's one type of supernova. The other type of supernova we'll talk about is an already dead star. It's a star much like what our sun will become. We call it a white dwarf star. It's the collapsed core of a star that's just dead. There's no energy. Nothing else is going on. It's just this very collapsed solid core. But what can happen to that is you can add too much material to it. If you put too much material on it, it eventually will collapse. And you can think of that as if you take a nice uh, little wobbly card table and start stacking books on it and keep stacking books on it. It stays fine. It stays just fine. But eventually, you're going to come to the point where you put that one book on it and it just gives up and collapses. The star will do the same thing. It can hold up against a lot of material. It's got a lot of internal structure that will hold up. But eventually, that one, one little bit of material will hit it. That's you know, that one straw too many. And it will, it will rip itself apart. So there's two types of supernovae that we can get. Which one this is, is not 
noted that I've been able to see. I looked, I looked around a little bit to see if I could find any more about this. It doesn't tell me exactly which one this was. This was, would have been visible here on Earth about three or 4,000 years ago. So it's not one that occurred recently. This occurred thousands of years ago. That material has been expanding out since then. The other thing I wanted to point out on it is that this material has lots of heavy elements in it. Heavy elements. What's a heavy element? To an astronomer, it's probably different to what it is to everybody else. To an astronomer, there are three elements. There's hydrogen, which is the vast majority of the universe, almost everything. There's helium, which is about all the rest. And then there's heavy elements, which is everything else in the periodic table. So carbon is a heavy element, nitrogen, oxygen. Anything beyond hydrogen and helium is considered a heavy element to an astronomer. Might not be to other scientists, but in the way astronomers look at things, you know, 90, if you count up atoms in the universe, 90% of them are hydrogen. 9.9% of them are 9% plus are helium. And that little tiny extra bit is all the stuff that makes up us. So that, that's why they put a group them all together as heavy elements. You'll also see them called sometimes metals. Yes, oxygen is called a metal to an astronomer. Anything beyond hydrogen and helium. But that's where they come from. That's where all of the oxygen in this room, the carbon in our bodies, neon, we looked at neon tubes last week, right? All the different elements that we looked at. Everything beyond helium in the periodic table that is here on Earth came from the supernova explosion. That's how it got back into the, into the mix to form stars. Stars formed, created all these heavy elements, exploded to throw all that material out into space. After that happened, billions upon billions of times, with lots and lots of stars, the material from which the stars formed now had lots of carbon to form us, lots of silicon forming rocks, lots of iron forming metals, and things like that, that allowed planets like the Earth to be able to form. So, in a way, all of us, you know, most of the stuff in our bodies, except for the hydrogen, came from something like this at some point in the distant past. So, we'll talk again. We'll talk more about supernovae a little bit in uh, probably towards the end of next month. And middle end of next month when we get up to that. Any questions? Yes, sir. Um, I was reading on the Large Hadron Collider. Large mm -hmm. Collider, yep. I was in physics and uh, I forget what we were covering that I looked it up. But I heard about that if a black hole collapses, it can cause something like a supernova. The formation of a black hole, yes, can cause a supernova. It's one of the things we'll, we'll look at that, yes. You could, uh, when the star collab, what happens? The first type of supernova, a very massive star, when that core collapses, it's possible that a black hole can form at the center. And then the material spinning around that can energize and explode out the outer layers. And that's what we see out there. So yes, a black hole could form as part of a supernova. Okay. So yeah. And we'll talk about black holes a lot more too. Anything else? Nope, nope, nope. All right. Well, what I'm going to go ahead is I'm going to go ahead back. I know that Professor King talked about telescopes a little bit, so you may see some duplication here. But I'm going to go ahead and start at the beginning of my slides and go through everything for you. That way I make sure we've covered everything that I want to, that I know that I want you to have heard. So we're going to start here at the beginning, and that's one of the other reasons I kind of delayed everything a little bit. But again, you may recognize some of the material here. I know he said he talked about the advantages and disadvantages, or the advantages of refractors and reflectors. Maybe yes? Okay. So what we're going to look at here is telescopes. Telescopes are, are instruments to use to really study the universe, and what we've used for the last 400 years. Before that, we had no telescopes. Before Galileo, we had no telescopes. Everything that was observed was observed by looking with the eye. So naked eye observing was all you could do, was look at the sky and see what's there. Now we have telescopes. The telescopes allow us to do a number of things. They allow us to collect more light. They're bigger. right? They've got a big mirror, a big lens. They can collect more light than our individual eye can. So we're able to see fainter objects, objects that are not visible. When you just look up there at the sky, you don't see anything in this spot. Well, if you point a telescope to that blank spot on the sky, all of a sudden new stars appear. 
They've been there all the time. They're just too faint for your eye to pick up. So the telescope can see things uh, much m that are much fainter than your eye can. The bigger the telescope, the fainter the object you can see. The telescope can also see finer detail than your eye. It has uh, ability to increase the resolution. So what you see is if you look out at the stars, you look at this nice bright star up there, now one star sitting there all by itself. But if you point a telescope at it, certain ones, you might find that there's actually two stars real close together. Your eye cannot separate these two. You don't have the resolution to be able to see it as two individual stars. They're too close together. It blurs together and you see one star. Whereas if you pointed a telescope at it, you might be able to separate it and see one, two, three, maybe four or five stars that are all close together. So telescopes help us a lot in that way. The other thing a telescope can do is to magnify and make things look a little bit bigger. That's less important to an astronomer than the other two. Here's an example of some telescopes. Not what you were expecting to see as a telescope, probably. Um, you're used to seeing you know, big optical telescopes. This is actually um, a set of radio telescopes. Looks like a bunch of satellite dishes out there. Um, they collect radio waves from the sky. Now, radio waves does not mean radio signals. A radio signal, like here on Earth, is a radio wave that has information embedded into it. So you can encode information into radio waves and transmit music, voice, you know, whatever, through the atmosphere here. Radio waves themselves do not have, do not have any, you know, you're not going to listen to the stars. You're not going to be listening to what the star of the galaxy is broadcasting. You're listening to just the noise that is coming, just the amount of energy. And what radio astronomers do is they set up whole arrays of radio telescopes. Many of these, not, not gigantic, not like the little tiny ones that, you know, DirecTV or Dish Network, you know, little tiny ones that they use. Uh, bigger than that, but some of these, um, this isn't the one, but the one we'll look at out in New Mexico, has telescopes that are, what are they, about 20, so about 80, 80 or 90 feet across. Good size, not gigantic, I mean not gigantic by any sense for um, how big you could possibly make a radio telescope, but good size, relatively little ones, easy to make. They can put a whole bunch of them together and there are different techniques that radio astronomers can use that instead of using these to observe, you know, how many are there, 20 or so? Instead of looking at 20 different objects, they can all look at the same object at the same time and be able to get much more information than any one of them could alone or than even all of them could if you're using them separately. Combining them together really gives us a lot of information and we'll look at that probably next time when we get to radio telescopes. But we're going to go back and we're going to start talking about optical telescopes first. Those are the ones that everybody is used to. Those are the ones that you've uh, got the Galileo scopes for class. Speaking of that, I think I, may have, I think I said last time we were going to do that this week, but I knew without reminders that I'd probably get a handful of people remembering to bring them in. So I'm not going to do it this week. I'm going to do a different Starry Night Lab. And I will do the Galileo scope one next Friday once we finish telescope. So do plan on bringing it there. If you did remember to bring it and you don't want to lug it around, uh, let me know after class. You can write your name on it and I can store it for you. So if I have a couple people who did bring them and don't want to drag them back home again and then worry about forgetting it, if you've got it here, I'll be happy to store it for you. I can stick them down in my office and then bring them up next Friday. So just a side there. So we're going to talk about optical telescopes. We're going to put one together next week. Uh, we're going to talk about the telescope sizes, how telescopes have gotten bigger and bigger. You know, Galileo's first telescopes, yours is called a Galileo scope. It's much bigger than what Galileo had. His things were, you know, half an inch. His lenses were like half an inch in size. Tremendous compared to your eye, but minuscule compared to what we're used to using today. Now we get telescopes with mirrors that are 10 meters across, you know, bigger than the size of this room. So tremendous in size by comparison. We'll talk about the size of the telescopes. We'll talk about being able to see more detail, getting higher resolution. Then after we're done with that, that's a big chunk of it. Then we'll look at radio astronomy and using radio telescopes. That was the second part of the electromagnetic spectrum that opened up to us. Visible light we had going back into antiquity. Radio astronomy started 
yeah, on and off, 1920s, 1930s, really start, started to pick up a little bit, but really didn't jump into anything until after World War II. So that was when this one really picked up. And then other astronomies didn't pick up until we could get satellites up above the atmosphere to be able to see them. So that's kind of a summary of what we're going to, going to look at for this chapter. So there are two different ways we can form an image. We can use mirrors that reflect light, or we can use lenses that refract light or bend light. Either way, the whole idea of any of, of, these, of these devices is to use something much bigger than your eye, whether it's like Galileo's and three quarters of an inch in size, still it's a lot bigger than the pupil of your eye, or it's a modern telescope, which where this might be you know, a meter across, might be two meters across, might be ten meters across, to very tremendous sizes now. Now, what this image is showing is that this mirror is not like the mirror in your bathroom or the mirror in your car where things are nice and flat. It's actually curved. And it's curved to a very specific shape that bends the light differently. So when this, this ray comes in up here, this light beam comes in and strikes here, this is curved so it's angled at a certain amount and that brings that light beam to this point. A beam that comes a little bit further down isn't bent quite as much, isn't reflected at quite the same angle, but it's, still, but it's adjusted so that it comes back to the same point. So what that means is that all of these rays, you could fill in ones, lots in between this, the curvature of the surface is designed exactly so it brings all of the light to this focus. So it collects all that light. Why do astronomers want bigger and bigger mirrors? Why are we now talking about telescopes that are 10 and 12 and even building telescopes that are 15 or maybe 20 meters inside? I mean, that's getting pretty big. You know, 20 meters is 20 yards. So, you know, 20 yard line of a football field to the goal line, that's, that's a big mirror to be stretching across that entire distance. And that's the little analogy down at the bottom is they're really what it's about. The whole idea is that we're trying to collect as much light as we possibly can. So if we're trying to collect as much light as we can, that would be like using a bucket to collect the rain. Right? If you use a little tiny bucket, use a little tiny cup, you're not going to collect a lot of rain. But if I get a gigantic wash tub, I'm going to collect a lot more rain because I've got a lot bigger collecting area. So the whole idea with building bigger and bigger telescopes is to do the same thing, is to be able to collect more and more light, and that allows astronomers to see fainter objects. We can see lots of things with Galileo, could see lots of things with his little tiny telescope that we could not see with the naked eye. We can see things with a uh, eight inch, or you know, some of the telescopes we have here, eight, 10 inch telescopes. We can see a lot more than Galileo could possibly see. A professional astronomical telescope several meters across can see a lot of things that you know a small 8 or 10 inch telescope can't begin to see. So bigger and bigger telescopes are constantly being used. But this is one design. One design uses a reflection, uses reflection, uses a mirror to bring that light back to a focus. So the light comes in, all reflected off the specially curved mirror, and comes back to a focus point. One problem with that, you might see, is that it's bringing it to a focus right here in front of the mirror, which means that if you want to observe this, where do you have to, we have to put your eye right there? And if I put my head right there, I'm blocking a lot of light. So there are some other methods we'll see around this, but a, reflect, a reflecting telescope like this does have that problem. You can't just go right here, especially with the smaller telescope. If this telescope is only six or eight inches across, and I put my head right there, I'm blocking just about everything and no light's going to get through my big head, right? You're not going to be able to get through there. So one little problem with reflecting telescopes, that matters less if I'm talking about a telescope that's the size of this room, if my head's there blocking it, am I blocking that big of a percentage? Eh, doesn't matter so much anymore. So that's a reflect, reflecting telescope. The other thing that you can have is a refracting telescope. This is what we're going to build next week. A refracting telescope uses lenses. And lenses end up doing the same job that the mirror does, 
in terms of bending the light. They do it a little bit differently. Instead of the light reflecting off of it, you don't have that. You have the light being bent twice. Once as light comes from here into the lens, it bends a little bit. It bends again when it comes out. And all that really depends on the angles, how this glass is shaped. Now I'm not going into the details of how you can shape the glass exactly. You do a specially curved surface that will bend it just right. And if you do that and put this all these pieces together, you can build a little lens. Luckily you don't have to do that. Your telescopes come with lenses. You don't have to grind out anything, which is the real nitty-gritty details of building a telescope. But you'll have these lenses here and you'll put them in and those, if everything's done right, will then bring the light, bend it exactly to bring it to a specific focus and you'll be able to see objects through it. But that's the other way you can get it. The whole idea is you're taking all this light coming from a very distant object and you're focusing it. You're bringing it to a central point so you can then get a nice image of what you're looking at in the sky. Whether it be the moon, one of the planets, a star, a nebula, all sorts of things that you would be able to see with, you know, even with one of the smaller telescopes like the one we'll build today. But different amounts of bending, again, it's just how you shape the glass. Just like you shape the mirror perfectly to get the bending right, you shape the glass perfectly to get the bending exactly what you want. Now, the advantage here, well, now the light's coming from here, comes through the lens, and comes to a focus here. And I can put my eye right there and I'm not blocking any of the light. So that's what yours are like. If you look at the picture of the tube, it's a long tube, and you look through it like this, the light comes straight through to you. So a little bit, little bit better there. It means you can use it for much smaller telescopes. Galileo's telescope uses, used lenses that were, you know, three quarters of an inch, maybe an inch or a little more across. Couldn't have done that with mirrors, right? If you had a little tiny mirror there, there's no way to be able to use that in a telescope. We don't, see, we don't see reflecting telescopes much until you get to about at least five or six inches in size. Get something that's at least a reasonable size where you can put something in there, not your head, but something to be able to get the light to some place where you can see it. So two different types of telescopes. Reflecting using mirrors, refracting using lenses to bring the light to a focus. Both are doing the same job. The bigger the lens, the bigger, the more light we're able to gather. The bigger the mirror, the more light we're able to gather. So here's an example of kind of bringing that, looking at an image here. We were talking about the original ones. We're looking at something like a star way off in the distance. Well, what's going to happen here? Here's this comet out in, the, out in space traveling through the solar system. If we look at it and we look at light from in this case, the orange is light from the top. So light from the head of the comet up here. Here is light from the middle of the comet into the tail. And here, light from the back of the comet, way down on the tail. As all that light comes in, it's coming in at different angles because it's not just coming from one point off in the distance. Some of the light's coming from here. It's coming at one angle. This one is slightly different. This is slightly different. They're all going to bounce at different rates. So this one that's coming in up a little bit bounces down and those two will come to a focus up here. Middle portions come right here in the middle in the focus in the central image of the telescope and the top will come to image down here. You'll see this when you use your telescopes. When you go ahead and take your telescopes and I have you point them, you know, if you're at the distance, point them at the periodic table or if you're on this side pointing at one of the posters on the wall on the other side you'll see everything's flipped upside down. All astronomical telescopes will do that. Everything is flipped upside down because that's the natural way the images will form. You can fix it, right? If you look at a pair of binoculars, everything isn't upside down. Everything's flipped around. You can fix this by adding extra lenses, but astronomers don't want to add extra lenses to that. You don't want to have the light have to travel any more than it has to. Every time you go through a lens or reflect off a mirror, you lose a little bit of light. Does that matter when I'm taking a pair of binoculars and watching birds during the middle of the day? If I lose a little bit of light, who cares? It's so bright out there, it doesn't make any difference. If I'm an astronomer looking for these objects that are so faint, 
that I can count the number of photons, number of particles of light coming, you know, one, two, three, and I'm losing some, I don't want to lose a one of those. So that's why astronomers don't want to, don't need to flip them upside down. Plus it really doesn't make any difference. They're not sitting there watching the uh, comet in this case. They'd be taking an image of it. And if you really want to see it the other way around, you flip it. But I wanted you to be aware of it because when you look through your telescope, I don't want you to the first thing, I did it wrong, everything's upside down. It's not. It's supposed to be upside down. You, did, you actually did it correctly. And in fact, there's no way to put yours together to make it come right side up. You don't have enough lenses to be able to do that. So you are going to see things upside down if you go and point the telescope or if you're looking through an astronomical telescope at something like the moon. You know, you'll have people look at it and then they'll look up at the moon and it's, everything's flipped around. So you do just want to be aware that all astronomical telescopes will do this, will flip everything uh, completely. Here's an example of both types of telescopes kind of put together. It's not just one mirror or one lens that's used. Uh, there's a minimum of two lenses to form a telescope if you're using lenses. You need one lens to collect the light, brings it to a focus, and another to reset it so your eye can see the image properly. So a um, lens telescope would use a minimum of two. Yours has, what, one? It's got one and then it's got a, several in the eyepiece. It's got like three or four in the eyepiece. So the eyepiece that you have to put together actually has several lenses in this case. But you need at least a couple. You need a couple to get to one to collect and one to really um, magnify the image then to something that you can actually see. That would be a refracting telescope where you're looking straight through it. A reflecting telescope, light comes down to the mirror, bounces off. It wants to come to a focus up there. But as I said, with a small telescope, it's kind of hard to put your head there and not block most of the light trying to come into the telescope. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't work. So what you do is you put a little tiny mirror here that takes that light and sets it off to an eyepiece. There's multiple ways to do this. You can turn this mirror on an angle so it comes out this way and have your eye looking here. You have some of them where the mirror is put straight and it bounces right back down through a little hole in the mirror and you can look from this direction much as you would with a refracting telescope. So there's several different ways to do it. It does involve blocking a little bit of light but not a whole lot. Most of the collecting area of the mirror is still wide open. You're only blocking this little tiny piece by putting a small mirror in there. Much better than putting my big head in there and blocking almost all the light. Or all of it, depending on the size of the mirror. So you can bring things to a focus different ways in a reflecting telescope than you can with a refracting telescope. These are all pretty much standard. You come straight through the tube, focus, eyepiece, uh, magnifies the light and then you're able to to see it. Now which one do we use? Well you probably, you may have talked a little bit about this on Wednesday. I'm not sure exactly uh, what he went over. But all modern telescopes are reflectors. The last refracting telescope, well yes you're building a refracting telescope. The last one that was used at a major astronomical observatory was finished in the late 1800s. 1896 is sticking in my head, but I didn't look up the number just this morning to make sure. Maybe it was 97, but late, late 1890s was the last time a refracting telescope was actually built. That one was, had a mirror or lens that was about a meter in size. That was tremendous for the technology of the time. That's tremendous to have a, a lens that is this big. That's nice and smooth. And it has, there's some problems with trying to build a lens this big. One of them, and I'm kind of jumping out of order here, but that lens, it may be this wide. How thick is it? It's not going to be you know, paper thin like this. It's going to be a big, thick lens. So a meter's worth of glass in a circle that's thick, you know, inches, a foot across, you know, how big is it, is very heavy. That's a lot of glass. Glass isn't light. Try to lift up a big heavy piece of glass, it's not, it's not light by the slightest. And when you want to support that, when you want to hold it into place, you can't just grab it and hold it from behind. You have to hold it only around the edges. So what's going to happen as you're holding it at the edges and it's moving, gravity's pulling that middle part and it's going to bend the mirror, bend the lens. It's going to distort it. I've got no way to push that back up. So you can imagine, let's say we did one that was two meters across. 
it's going to be even worse. Now we've got something that's two of these sticks across that's that big. I still can't hold it in the middle. I can only hold it at that end down there, this end down here. This middle is going to really start deforming. That's one of the big problems with trying to build a refracting telescope larger. Um, some of the others, I've mentioned this, I mentioned this previously, some of the light traveling through the lens is absorbed. So you, the thicker that glass gets, the more light you're going to lose. And when you're looking for very faint objects, if all you want to look at with that is the moon, yeah, big deal, the moon's real bright. If you lose 10% of the light, you're not, it's not going to hurt you. If you're looking at some very, very faint objects, very, very faint distant galaxies, you know, looking back many billions of years, you want every single one of those. You want to get all that light. You, want your, you don't want to lose any, any of the light from that object. So these are some of the problems with that. What else did I say? Um, light traveling through the lens is refracted differently depending on wavelength. Right? We know that from last time. Right? We talked about a prism. And we used our little spectroscopes to, which didn't have a prism but had something similar where you had light coming in and then was bent by differing amounts. So you had, you know, blue light, bent a lot, red light, not bent so much. But it bent each color of light differently. A lens is going to do the same thing. A lens is essentially a prism and some more glass and then another prism on the bottom. It's going to bend all the light a little bit differently. So red light doesn't get bent as much. When it comes to a focus, you know, for one from the bottom, it's going to come to a focus out here. Blue light got bent a lot more. It comes to a focus there. Where are you going to observe? You're going to look at the red light. Now the blue light's out of focus. You're going to look at the blue light and the red light's out of focus. You can try this after you build your telescopes next week. Go out and look at, don't, don't, don't do the sun, but look at a bright star at night and you'll see that it will look, depending on how you have the focus set, it'll either look a little bluer and have like a red halo around it where the red is out of focus or it'll look like it has a blue halo around it where the blue's out of focus. You, can't get, you can get rid of one or the other, you can't get rid of all of it. So it's one problem with uh, refracting telescopes. Astronomers can minimize this. You can add another lens. You can add multiple sets of lenses to eliminate and try to get everything back to focus at the same part by bending the light and then bending the light again. But then you come back to this problem. The more lenses you put there, the more light you're losing. Again, great if you're looking at a bright object. If you want to look at the moon, if you want to look at the bright planets, if you want to look at bright stars, no big deal to lose some of the light. But astronomers are always looking at the faintest objects they can find and that would crush them. The last one, as I kind of did these out of order, is that the lens needs two nice smooth surfaces. Right? The light, this has to be nice and smooth where the light is coming in. Can't have it all uh, scratched up or deformed or wiggly. You know, you can't have a surface that looks like that. It's not going to work. But you also have to have this side perfect. So you have to grind one side just right, you've got to grind the other side just right. Again, luckily you don't have to grind the lenses, they're already made for you and ready. But in terms of building bigger telescopes, you've got to get this side ready and this side ready. Whereas in a mirror, if I draw a nice little, little mirror here, this side has to be perfectly smooth. But you know what, the light never goes through any of the rest of this. So if I've got big air bubbles in here, doesn't matter. Right? I was cooling the glass and I didn't do it quite right and I got big air bubbles in it. Well, as long as I grind this side perfectly smooth and those air bubbles aren't to the surface, it doesn't matter. The light will still reflect off that just fine. Plus I can put big supports here. If I want to hold this every way, all the way across, you know, unlike the lens, I can only hold the very edges. I can support this from behind. So it's much easier to build something that's two and three and four times larger than what we build with a lens. Now, that said, this last refracting telescope, um, it's at the Yerkes Observatory outside of Chicago. And could we build a bigger one today? Our technology has changed a tiny bit since the late 1890s, right? You know, we're, we could probably build one that's two or three meters in size. 
we probably still could not build one that is as big as the largest reflecting telescopes. We probably have technology that could minimize some of these things. Instead of the lens having to be you know, so gigantically thick, we have new, you know, it doesn't have to be a piece of glass now, right? We have plastics and things. You know, like eyeglasses, you used to have big eyeglass prescription, you had glasses that you know, were really thick. Now they can do ones that are you know, getting really, really thin. So we have technology that could allow us to build a bigger one if we wanted to, but it still wouldn't compare to what we can build. And that's probably a big part of the reason that we have not built a large refracting telescope in over 100 years now. Lots of little ones are still used. I like the ones we're going to use to do next week but not a large one in that long. All right. Now I mentioned different kinds of focus. I'm going to show you a couple of them up here. These all reply just to apply just to reflect, reflecting telescopes. There is a prime focus. That is where the light comes down, bounces back up to where it naturally focuses. And you can collect the light there and, and observe it. As I said, for a small telescope, that don't work. Because if this is only five or six inches across and I try to put an eyepiece there and look there, I'm going to block the light coming in and I'm not going to see much. Doesn't matter if it's the moon I'm trying to look at or a distant galaxy. I'm not going to see anything. However, when you get telescopes that are four and five and six meters across, they're pretty big. And you can actually put equipment up here at the focus to be able to observe. And there are large telescopes where there's, an observe, there's been an observing cage. An astronomer can actually ride up there. Doesn't happen as much anymore uh, because technology, now we can do have cameras and things up there. And the astronomer, instead of sitting out in the cold night air, can sit you know, nice warm in the control room and watch what's going on. But you can. There, have, there are cases where astronomers will sit up there and ride with the telescope with their instruments all night. So they can actually stay up there in this, in this section. They're blocking a section of the light, but not when it's four or five meters across and you're blocking one little meter at the center. You're really not blocking a whole lot of the area. Now, if you're not going to do that, you've got to find some way to get this light someplace that you can see it. And you do that by adding, this is the primary mirror, the major mirror. There's a secondary mirror. You add another mirror in here. And we looked at this one before. This is actually called the Newtonian focus, Isaac Newton. Came up with this idea that you'd put a little mirror in there that's tilted so your light would come down, same as here, come back up, trying to go here, but we block it. We put a little tiny mirror in the way and push it out to the side, and then we observe the light coming from the side, observe the light to the side. If you leave that mirror straight across, it'll reflect the light straight back down, and you can drill a little hole in the bottom of your mirror. Any big deal? Well, you know what? This is blocking the light anyway, so there was no light that was getting there. So it really doesn't matter. And you can block the light right through there. And you can observe from this side. This is real nice if you want to put a big heavy instrument on to observe. You know, if you're putting like a little, uh, something little on, it's not so bad. But some of the astronomical detectors, this big spectrographs, are not like the little tiny ones that we held up today. They can weigh, you know, hundreds of pounds. And if they attach down here, it's much more stable. We've got a lot more weight down here, and we're not throwing it off. If you can imagine putting a gigantic camera, a gigantic piece of equipment on this edge of the, edge of the telescope, you're gonna keep, it's going to be trying to twist that and turn that. Gravity is going to be pulling it. So for real big instruments, astronomers use what's called the Cassegrain focus here. For smaller instruments or for observing, lots of amateur telescopes work this way, use the Newtonian focus. The last one is for really, really big instruments that you couldn't even begin to attach. There are some cases where the instrument is just too gigantic that you have to leave it out on the ground. So this light bounces once, twice back down here, and then it goes off actually to a separate room. So the light actually travels out here to uh, instrumentation that is not actually attached to the telescope. You can direct the light path so that it will constantly be pointing in the same area and going to the same direction and then can be observed. So you can have equipment that is even larger. Stuff that you could not begin to attach to the telescope and still be able to observe it. What you can do is adjust not just where you can't, you can't really move your equipment but you can move this lens can be turned. So if you turn this lens a little bit you can slowly change and keep the light going into the same spot as your telescope moves around.
So several different ways you can do this. Again, with the refracting telescope, it's all one. Go straight through and you're done with it. Reflecting telescope, there's a number of different methods that are used depending on exactly how you want to observe. So here's an example of one of these telescopes. This is the Keck telescope. Uh, give you an idea of how large it is in this middle inset labeled C. I don't know if you can see, there is a person kind of kneeling there. Just to give you an idea of how big the telescope is. And this one is actually set up in a number of different segments. It's got 36 different pieces to it. And they're all in the shape of a hexagon. Why a hexagon? Well, that's like honeycomb, right? Really stable, able to put all these pieces together. Everything fits together perfectly. If you made them in circles, you'd have all this extra space in between them. So they make them in little hexagons. Also nice that if something goes wrong with one piece, or one piece gets damaged, your telescope isn't shot. Right? Especially when you're building a telescope that is many meters across. You can replace the piece, replace that one, and the rest of your telescope is still, is still good. But this is how, how it would look. This is kind of a sketch of it here. The light comes in, reflects off these mirrors, bounces back up to a secondary mirror or a primary focus up here, can go back down either straight through. Again, this is trying to show all of them at once. It can go either use this third mirror or that can be removed and it can go straight back down to the Cassegrain focus. It can go off to the Coudet focus, off to this direction. All depending on exactly what instruments the astronomer wants to use. In really no cases, or essentially no cases in modern astronomy, does the astronomer actually sit there and look through the telescope? You have you know, video cameras and video feeds leading in from the various focus, whatever you're using, to see what the telescope is seeing. And then you'll take extended images. You won't just look at it, you'll actually have extended images and take photographs of that to be able to see much more detail. So that's just an example of one of the telescopes there. Um, in terms of collecting the images, um, you're familiar with these, if not by name, uh, but you've, we've used them all. Uh, charge coupled devices were developed uh, in part for astronomy. Astronomers developed some of the most sensitive ones early on, many decades ago. Now, we, now everybody uses them, right? Got a camera in your phone, it's this kind of device that is collecting the light. Right? If you used to do photography you know, years and years ago, you had film you had to put in the camera and then take off to be developed and you found out you know, a few days later if your pictures that you took came out, not, oh, that was bad, let me take it again. You, know, you didn't have that advantage. Astronomers did some of the pioneering work on developing really, really sensitive devices like these charge coupled devices that we use today that, would, that were sensitive to light. So, give you an idea of how small that is, that's one millimeter. Right? When we look at the rulers, those are the tiniest divisions on the metric side that, that it shows on, the, on a typical ruler. That's those little teeny tiny divisions. And in that one millimeter, you can have a whole bunch of these little arrays. Because this is, there's the whole detector, there's, we're looking at this one section zoomed in, and that's all the detail. So you'd collect the light, each of these would collect how much light hits it, and then read the image, you'd read the image off. It just counts how many photons hit it, you know. Well, one hit here, three hit here, ten hit here, a hundred hit here, fifteen. And that puts together eventually an image. In this case, a very coarse image that we're showing as an example. But we know now how much easier those are to use, right? We can look at them, see if our image comes out. Hey, something didn't work right in our picture. I'm going to take another picture with my phone before I lose the image. So you can actually take multiple images over and over, over and over again. That's different than what used to be done. What used to be done was not film in astronomy generally. Film was just a plastic backing with a, a light sensitive emulsion on it. Astronomers actually used photographic plates, piece of glass, piece of glass with the same photographic emulsion, light sensitive on it. So you would take your instruments, you'd put the light sensitive, you'd put the uh, plate in there, take your image. Take it back, you'd have to then develop it. So you'd actually have to physically go through and develop it. You'd have to, in the meantime, of course, not trip and fall while you're carrying your plates because they would obviously shatter. And the advantage of these is, you know, what we know today. How easy is it to adjust and do uh, computer manipulations to an image 
to finesse it, to look at, to focus on what you want to see on the image. Whereas on a plate, you have your picture there, you have your old picture printed out, you can't do a whole lot with that in that format. When it's in a digital format, you can do a lot more. So people are usually quite familiar with this now, but it was a lot of the pioneering work was done you know, decades ago, 20, 30 years ago, by astronomers were really developing these and needed to make them very, very sensitive because when you take a picture here, you've got lots of light. When astronomers are doing things, they are getting down to the point where they needed to be sensitive to one photon of light. One. You know, not billions upon billions that are coming that are sweet dreaming through this room right now. So very, very sensitive ones. And then as I said, we can take computers, we can process the images. So we can make adjustments, we can adjust things here, and you can start off with an image like this and bring it in finer and finer detail, be able to see that you know, what might have looked like a single star. Upon computer processing, we might be able to bring out, well, maybe there's something here plus a bunch of little stars around it. You know, you saw here, maybe there's something out, he out here. Now you're clearly seeing that there's two other objects. And as you get it even better refined, you can see that there's more and more detail and matching up much better than what you'd, with what you'd expect to see for perhaps a cluster of stars. So you can actually work your way from something that's not quite as good up to something that is much, much better. So we could certainly use computer processing on the images. And again, a lot of that work was done by astronomers uh, many decades ago too to build software that would allow them to get the best images and the most accurate images. Because astronomers, you know, scientists want to get exactly, they want to know exactly what it is. They don't want to just make it a nice, oh, I can focus and get a nice pretty image. But they also want to, is that real? Now it's very easy to get a computer algorithm that might not do quite what you want it to do and you might not get exactly what is real. So astronomers wanted to be able to be convinced that they were real as well. All right, Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, we'll look at that a little bit more uh, detail uh, after. But Hubble Space Telescope was launched in 1990. So it has been in space for, see that was April of 1990. So what, 24 and a half years now? Been up there for a long time. It was originally like a 10-year mission that got extended and extended. And it's now on the last of its mission. When is it done? No clue. Can't really tell you. But there are no more servicing missions. If you see here, this is the shuttle. This is the shuttle bay. And the robotic arm, which would have released the, released the spacecraft into orbit. Well, the shuttles are done. There is actually no way that we can now get up to the space telescope. So if something went wrong with it that needed an astronaut to go fix, you know, the astronauts had to go up a couple times to fix it, then there's nothing else we can do now. There's no way to get back up there. Get up to the space station, it's nowhere, it's not going to be anywhere near the space station. It's up in a, it's actually in an even higher, or it's in a very high orbit, as high an orbit as the shuttle could possibly reach. Still pretty low uh, orbit-wise, but not something that we could ever get to again. There is a replacement plan for it. Uh, the James Webb Telescope is under design and is planned to be launched, when was it, late, later? Well, later this decade, in the next you know, couple of years, it's supposed to be launched. Going to be much bigger, much uh, more improved instrumentation. Um, the Mir here was designed you know, well back in the 80s, launched in 1990. Uh, the technology, the instrumentation, a lot of that instruments have been replaced over the years. That was how it was designed to be modular, that you could take pieces out and add more modern instruments. So the nice thing is it's not still instruments that were designed in the 80s. You know, cameras have changed since the late 1980s. Even digital cameras have become much better. So much better technology has been improved into the Hubble Space Telescope as well. But the advantage of Hubble Space Telescope is having it up above the atmosphere. If you've ever looked out at the sky at night, right, the stars look like they twinkle, especially on those hot, hazy summer nights. The stars are jumping all over the place. That's not the stars. That's our atmosphere. Stars don't twinkle. They just sit there. But when their light comes through our atmosphere, the atmosphere just keeps changing its path. So it means that the light from that star looks like it's coming from slightly different places. It gets moved all over. And that blurs it out. When you look at the image, you know, your star might be here one second and here the next second and then here and then here and then here and then. 
So when you actually look at it, if you take an image of it, you actually get this star that's, that looks so big. It's really not. It's really just a tiny point. It gets spread out by the atmosphere. So we lose a lot of detail. We want to see that. That's what we see because our atmosphere is blurring the light. Those hazy summer nights are the worst. Those nice cold winter nights are much better. You'll get closer to this because the atmosphere is much more stable. Hubble doesn't have to worry about that. Hubble is up above the atmosphere and doesn't have to look through it at all. So it can get very high resolution, much more detail. You can imagine if this was five little stars here real close together, they're all going to get blurred out when we look at them through the Earth's atmosphere. Here we'd be able to see that grouping, say, of five stars. We would lose that here on Earth. Now there's techniques that we're actually developing now that get around this and actually can get us closer to this. Not quite as good as the space telescope, but can actually help a little bit there. Let me see where I am. And there's just, an, yeah, let me just stop here and then I'll, let me do this previous one and then we'll stop there as we've gotten through the introduction and then I'll get on to some of the powers of a telescope and on Monday. So this is just an example of like the resolution of what Hubble Space Telescope can see. Um, as I recall, does that say? Yes. This is the, this is a ground-based telescope looking at a galaxy. If we look at the same galaxy with the Hubble Space Telescope and here even zooming into the center, we can see so much more detail. It all gets washed out here on Earth because of this effect, because we're looking through the atmosphere. We can get much higher resolution. Look at the detail that we're seeing there. This bright nucleus essentially is what we were looking at here. That was all washed out. That all got blurred together by the Earth's atmosphere. Hubble can now look at it and actually see individual stars, see the central portions there, perhaps some gas clouds, dust clouds, all sorts of things that are now visible. So much more detail able to be seen by Hubble. And then where I'm going to pick up, next time I'll start talking about the three different powers of a telescope. I kind of talked about these as we did the introduction, but I'll come back and talk about these in a little bit more detail. So, give you a break here, and then we will come back and uh, I have a starry night lab that we're going to do, and then we will do the telescope one next week, which of course we'll have finished telescope, so it'll, it'll still be at the appropriate time. Question? Yeah? Article was 